With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Margaret Mutu is of Ngati Kahu, Te Rarawa, Ngati Whatua and Scottish descent. She is the Professor of Māori Studies at the University of Auckland, where she teaches and conducts research on Māori language, tikanga, law, history and traditions, rights and sovereignty, te tiriti or waitangi, and treaty claims against the English crown, constitutional transformation and Māori-Chinese encounters. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics, a Master of Philosophy in Māori Studies, PhD in Māori Studies, specialising in linguistics and diptych. She has published four books and numerous articles. I'm nearly at the end of the list. Margaret is the chair of her iwi parliament, Te Runanga a Iwi o Ngāti Kahu, of the far north and of two of her marae. And she's been mandated representative of Ngāti Kahu and of Māori in a number of national and international fora. So there we have the long list um, that uh, goes with Margaret. Thank you, Margaret, for coming on our radio station, RCR, um, this morning. We really appreciate you coming on. Hi, kia ora. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, I want to get into all the, you know, obvious stuff, um, uh, treaty principles, David Seymour, change of government, referendums, etc. But given that it was so recent, what a week or so on, a little bit more perhaps, are your reflections on the events of Waitangi Day this year? And I guess the place at that point, which is now where we find ourselves as a country. So I have to say that Waitangi Day this year was very different from what I've uh, experienced uh, over my lifetime. And in a way, it was very, very good uh, because what I saw was incredible unity amongst Māori. I've been at Waitangi before where there's been divisions uh, and, you know, some of perhaps the more conservative of our people not wanting the louder ones to be heard. Um, And so you had sort of divisions there that, I never thought was very helpful. But this time, uh, there was none of that. And it was that everybody would be formally welcomed onto what we call the top marae, and everybody was acknowledged. Now, that's something that we've always struggled to get within the Māori world, is to bring the people together. And I have to thank David Seymour for doing that. Or for being a catalyst for it. Yes, he has. Um, Nobody else has been able to do that. But David has. It's just a shame that he's done it in a way it was because we had to protect ourselves from him that we came together as one. Now, it was not only that we came together as one, it was also that the message was a single message, which was, please, government, what you're doing to us is wrong. And you must stop what you are doing. And the the clearest message was, do not try to interfere with te tiriti or waitangi. It is a very sacred document. And anything that's very tapu in the Māori world, you try to desecrate it and Māoridom will rise up to stop it. And that's what I saw. But what the other thing that I found so incredibly um, gratifying when I was at Waitangi was the number of Pākehā and the number of Chinese, the number of non-Māori who were at Waitangi. And on the 6th, I, I only had to do one interview on the 6th, so um, I, I got time to wander around. And I was just so gratified to see the numbers of people non-Māori can't always tell, of course, who's non-Māori and who's not. Um, but I was gratified to see how many were there. Um, what, what, what does that? What did that tell you? Do you think? Um, first of all, that people want to know. This is something that's worried me for a long time: is that people don't necessarily understand why it is that Māori have been so angry for so long about the treaty, and that I think a lot of them were coming so that they could please understand 
what it was that was going on. But others, and especially um, many Pākehā who approached me, said to me, how can we help? We do understand what is happening here. How can we help? Uh, and and that's something that I just haven't seen um, before. I have I have known for several decade, decades now that there are um, treaty educators out there, Pākehā people who train Pākehās on what the treaty is, what he hapaputama is. I've, I've always known about these groups. Um, but these were groups other than that coming mm. to me and asking how can we help. Now that's... We're just not used to that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned, you know, the government, what the government are doing to Murray, asking them to stop. In fact, um, I, I saw a piece you wrote, I think, about the Turanga Waiwai Hui, and you said that um, that the people were saying, we all know we're in great pain, we all know we're being dumped on, we know we're being vilified, demonised, marginalised, now we have to go out and do something about it. I think it was almost a direct quote. Yep. When you say the government, you're really talking about the majority of New Zealand voters, aren't you? Because they voted for this. So where Māori are coming from is the what is being done to us. And there are, um, during last year, uh, we noticed an increasing number of racist attacks on Māori. But after the election, and then particularly after the announcement of the coalition um, agreements, the number of reports that were received of Māori being abused in the streets, in the supermarkets, uh, just on day-to-day -day in their own workplace, it just rose significantly. And this is what I mean about the pain. Because yeah. whenever we get attacked for being Māori, in our own country, it hurts. No, I can, really I can imagine that, totally. So when people say, but the government is there and the government represents the majority, that actually makes me really sad because I had always believed, and I have to say it was until 2004, I believed, that most Pākehā understood us and then when the foreshore and seafood bed was confiscated from us and we saw Pākehā saying, no, Māori are going to stop you going to the beaches, which we knew was a bare-faced lie. But when I saw that, I thought, oh, perhaps I don't understand my Pākehā side as well as I thought I did. Um, and perhaps there is a whole lot more that we should be doing to make our Pākehā people feel like they have a place in here and to understand the Māori world that they've come into. But when I see the government doing what it's doing, I didn't get the impression during the run-up to the government that it was going to be as direct and, I use this word purposely, vicious as it is at the moment. When you say purposefully vicious, uh, yeah. who exactly are you talking about? Because you've talked about racial abuse. I, I take it that's verbal abuse. I don't yes, know if it's it against violence, it but, but okay, there's that. But just, just so explain exactly what you mean by what you just said there. Okay, so David Seymour is, is a, a classic example of this, and I was so worried about his speech that he gave, I think it was on the 29th of January, um, his State of the Nation speech. I was so worried about it that I took it out and I ran an analysis across it of the statements in it that were racist and the statements that in it that were those of a white supremacist. And I was quite stunned at the number of times that I went through and highlighted a sentence each of these sentences, it ended up being a huge number, I'm afraid. Um, oh, most of it was a pure demonstration of white supremacy. Now, white supremacy is about the need for white, and, and traditionally it was white Christians, to rule the world and to dominate the world. And in doing so, to disadvantage and discriminate against non-whites. And so I went through sentence by sentence his speech and 
as I said, there were at least 20 or 30 examples of white supremacy of Parkia culture, English-derived culture, wanting to dominate Māori, to dictate to Māori what you can and you can't do, to dictate to Māori that you can no longer be Māori, you must be a New Zealander, that everything that you hold dear as Māori, such as our whakapapa, who we descend from, those we are related to, our whānau, our hapu, the fact that we do not see ourselves as being individuals, but rather see ourselves as whānau, hapu and iwi. Those are just two different cultures, that's all there is. It's not about whether one's better than the other. It's just two different cultures. But to see David um, denigrate, belittle and criticise the fact that Māori hold these cultural values was quite stunning to me, but it's really, really clear in his speech. And as I say, I'm an academic, I'm a linguist, okay? Yep, yep. I can go through and do this sort of analysis, and I did it. And I was extremely worried about how blatantly white supremacist and how blatantly racist David can be, and that that is seen as normal and acceptable by large numbers of the population. That is extremely worrying. But the way people see it <clears throat> is a legacy of culture as well, isn't it? Which people, they might argue that they don't even realise they're in because Absolutely. That's, that's the Absolutely. way life is. And, you know, um, and, and you can see through history <clears throat> Britannia ruling the waves, a superpower of its time, naval reach across the globe, the arrogance of 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 that, and there was a lot of it. It, it tried to dominate the world. There's no question about it. Technology, I'm, I'm not trying to rerun history, but you can see how people can get to a point where they say, well, this is the obvious way to live. And, you know, if it's not focused on the individual and my individual rights and, and the, you know, the individual being sovereign and everything, speaking to your point about, you know, Fano connection, fucker papa connection to that, that sort of stuff. It, it's it, it's kind of not they're not there on purpose. If you know yes, what I'm saying? Yes, no, I understand that completely. And this, where this becomes very important, is in the history of this country, particularly the post eighteen forty history. Well, to some extent, the um, really all of the eighteen hundreds and all of the nineteen hundreds, and what happened there. So if you don't mind, I'd just like to step through sure, uh, go. those. So back in the early 1800s, you did have sealers, whalers, and what have you here. And Aldangatira were coming together a bit concerned about the behaviour of some of them. But that concern didn't become really considerable concern until really about the early 1830s. Now, by that time, you were starting to get increasing numbers of them, still only a few hundred of them here, but they were becoming increasingly um, refusing to comply with the, the law of the land, which is tikanga. So at that stage, our rangatira went on trips to England because missionaries had started arriving and missionaries couldn't control these people either. But they advised that the best thing to do, because our people just asked, well, who does know how to control these people? And they said, well, the King of England does. So off they went to England. Can, can so, I just ask one question? Yeah. When you say control, the behaviour, yeah. what what yeah. what sort of behaviour was this? Was that oh, okay. dom okay. dominating behaviour? Um... No, no, no. It, it was what was considered to be totally uncivilised un debauchery. So I'm talking right. um, drunkenness, murder, theft, rape, all those sort of what we consider and I think most cultures to consider to be totally uncivilised. Like freewheeling Wild West out of control. Oh, totally out of control. And the the central place for that was Kororareka, which is today known as Russell. And there's been a book written on that because it was known as the hellhole of the Pacific because wow. of that behaviour. Okay. Um, and a, a book has been written called The Hellhole of the Pacific <laughs> on that behaviour. It's hardly a great accolade. To 
<laughs> no, but it was. <laughs> you can live there to grow about. I suppose yeah. it's a place in history, though. Yeah. It, it is. And it's not one that is well known amongst most Pākehā in this country. And that's why I'm talking about the history. So Aurangatira went to England, saw that the King of England most definitely knew how to control lawless people, came back here, uh, asked for a Pākehā to be sent who may be able to do something. They sent the British resident. He couldn't do anything uh, about it. But what he suggested was, well, write out a statement that declares what the laws of this country are. And that was written out in 1835 by the British resident in English and then translated into Māori that said, all power and authority rests with the uh, the rangatira of the hapu. They are the only ones who can make any laws in this country. They will never devolve that uh, authority to anyone else. And thank you very much, King of England, for recognising our flag so that our ships don't get um, uh, arrested for being pirate ships because they're not flying a flag. And is that akin to the birth of some kind of nation state, is it? Yes, I, yes, because what happened was that the King of England recognised that declaration and recognised that we were a sovereign state. But when you get five years on later, that lot at Kororareka still weren't abiding by the law, even though there was a declaration saying what the law was. They just flatly refused. And by that point, the chiefs just said, we have had enough of this. You, England, take control of your people. We are no longer responsible for them. And that's what the treaty is all about, is passing responsibility for the lawless ones who were here and any others still coming, that the Queen of England would exercise what the missionaries call kawanatanga to keep those people in control. What they did also in the treaty was recognise the statement that had already been issued in 1835 that tanga would always rest with the hapu. And in addition to that, that Māori would be given access to British culture, British law, because we liked some of the stuff that was coming out. We liked the literacy. We liked the technology. Didn't like the white supremacy, refused to have anything to do with that but we did like other parts of it. So there was a consciousness of white supremacy then? No, because there wasn't any supremacy in the country. Right, I got you. The country was still under the control of Māori, and practically until the 1850s, that was the reality, simply because the Pākehās that were here, there were only 2,000 in 1840, and more than 100,000, 150,000, we don't know exactly, um, Māori. And so Pākehās were greatly outnumbered. And they they hadn't uh, tried to make war on us or anything like that. That didn't happen until the 1860s. Now, what happened, your white supremacy started to show its head within three months of the signing of the treaty when Busby issued unilaterally, without talking to the rangatira at all, issued a proclamation. And that was on the 21st of May, 1840, he issued a proclamation saying that the Queen of England had taken over sovereignty of this country. Now, Māori knew nothing about that. All they knew was what was in Te Tiriti. Of course, what Busby had done was he'd written up an English version which the missionaries refused to translate because when they said that Māori would cede sovereignty, that was effectively a declaration of war. And the missionaries knew that if they did not want to be consigned to the hāngi, they could not put that in the Māori language. So they didn't want to go there with that? Oh, the missionaries, no way. Wouldn't go there. And that's why Tetiriti doesn't mention anything at all about ceding sovereignty that was obviously Busby's wish list that they do cede sovereignty. Well, Busby was told in no uncertain terms that Māori would not accept that. And yet, and this is where the white supremacy comes in, he issued a proclamation three months later or two months later uh, saying that the Queen of England had taken sovereignty and then proceeded as if 
white, white supremacy had taken over in this country. You get a whole, um, in the 1860s, when Māori are refusing to give up land because they'd already had a whole lot taken off them, started to refuse to give up the land. And this was down in Tainui, down in the Waikato, in Taranaki, over in Tauranga, uh, and on the East Coast. When they refused, the governor pulled in troops from England and invaded. And the atrocities that were committed there have all been recorded by the Waitangi Tribunal. And they were horrendous atrocities. But the important thing was that those who took part in those atrocities then um, covered it all up with what I've called a blanket of amnesia. And that amnesia, they, they literally suppressed what had happened. Nothing is recorded in the history books that were written. Uh, and when it started coming out was when the Waitangi Tribunal started inquiring. The documentation for what happened was there in the archives, in the government archives. But it took historians from the tribunal going through those archives to bring the stuff out. And they did that at the behest of those hapu and iwi who were invaded uh, and who had kept saying this is what had happened and were always told by government officials, by governments, you're lying, you're, you're, you're being totally, you know, they were vilified, they were demonised for daring to say that Pākehā owning land in this country was not done honourably and it was a breach of the treaty. It was a breach of everything, actually. But it's that amnesia. And so you had a denial throughout the population of what had gone on. You get to the 1930s and Sir Apirana Ngata writes out a piece that basically says, people, you need to calm down. You keep asking me, why is the treaty being violated? And I'm telling you, please don't ask these questions. You have to accept that the British are in charge, that the British have taken sovereignty. Why would he have taken that position? Uh, Do you think he believed in that? Yes, thank you for asking me that question, because I saw that attitude in my father. My father was born in 1910. And he married my mother, who's from Scotland, okay? And my mother was absolutely horrified when she came here, not only at the racism that she saw, which just didn't exist in England and Scotland in those days, but she was horrified. But she was more horrified at my father's attitude. And my father's attitude was, please never criticise a Pākehā, Never argue with a Pākehā, because if you do, it is Māori who will get hurt. Don't do it. And my mother's saying, but this is wrong. You can't do that. My mother taught my brother and I, if anyone tells you you can't have anything, can't do anything, can't be anything, because you're Māori, do not listen to them, which is the opposite of what my father would say. And that's what Sir Apirana was saying. It's Did you same. ever talk about that with your with your father at any time? Did you ever have that have that, that opportunity? My father yeah. died when I was ten, so you um, wouldn't have known. Okay. Yeah, so I never had that in depth. So, but, but what explains that um, acquiescence? That sort of, oh, well, some might say giving up, but others might say it's a kind of a pragmatic, practical way to exist in the current world that you're finding yourself in, and if you want to have some sort of material. Um, you know, position or, or, or life's not too tough, standard of living's reasonable, you pay, play the game. What would it be? No, so my father talked to us many times about the way he and his brothers and sisters were beaten up at school for speaking their language. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the way they were um, discriminated against, you know, if he, when he and my mother got um, married, my mother wanted to go and stay in a hotel somewhere, and my father said, no, 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 we go and stay with my relations, and mum goes, no. So they go into the hotel because my mum's very insistent. Yeah. And the person on the desk goes, yes, ma'am, you can have a room, but he needs to sleep out in the shed or out yeah. on the street. He it's can't. a shock. That's a shock. Yeah. And my mother goes, wow, what the yeah. hell is this? 
Um, so it's knowing that that is your lot and that if you don't want to be severely punished both physically and psychologically, you avoid that sort of thing. And that's what I was taught as a child. Yeah. Avoid the racism. Avoid it because it's painful. And every time somebody did it, you could see my father recoil. Um, now, I'm a lot fairer, of course, than my father was. Um, but I see it in my cousins as well. They just recoil every time. And you go into this protection mode to try and protect yourselves. However, that generation, so I saw it in my father's brother, who lived to be much, much older. He he died, you know, when I was in my 40s. Mm. Once he retired, he was a government man employed in the government. Once he retired, all the shackles came off. Really? And he told me about how he was treated when he was in the government department. He was in the Ministry of Works. He finally ended up in a very senior position, but he was extremely bitter about how he'd been held back for years and years, even wow. though he knew a lot more, he was a lot more experienced, a lot more expertise than others around him. The park has always got promoted over the top of him, and he knew it was wrong. Me trying to get him to talk about it when, you know, I was younger, he would never talk about it. But once he was retired and away from that, what we call the, you know, the hooks of white supremacy, boy, did he let go and told me of all of the things that had happened to them as children. And you can understand why they would protect themselves. I've done it myself. I protect myself. I am not going to go into the same situation over and over again where all that happens to me is I get attacked and demand to explain why Māori think like we do, why we say what we do, why we are what we are. When I came out of the university, went teaching as a mathematics teacher, I was told by my colleagues uh, at school, you're not Māori because you have a BSc in mathematics. Um, and they couldn't understand why that I was hurt by that. And I well, uh, Look, anyone would be, Mark. I mean, it's ridiculous to say that. <laughs> that's I, I, our I reality. That. Yeah. That's but, our reality. And that's any, why when you see the Any fair-minded person would have, you know, would have balked at hearing that anyway to say. But you, when you've got a government who's effectively now doing it and doing it on from multiple angles at you, and you've all experienced this all your life, but you've had the Waitangi Tribunal say, no, this was wrong. And you've got, for example, the Human Rights Commission saying, no, these are your rights. You have a right not to be discriminated against. You have a right to be Māori. You have a right to make a decision, make your own decisions about your own lives. So when suddenly you get a government that says we're going to take away, and I'm not going to list them all because there's more than 20 of them, we're going to take these all away from you, Māori go, no, you're not, and we will tell you why, and we will not let you do it. And it's really united us because we have all grown up with this same oppression, the same discrimination. We know it's wrong, but we also know that many Pākehā in this country have no idea of what it is that we go through. They have no idea. Those colleagues of mine who said, I'm not Māori because i got a BSc, had no idea how hurtful and how wrong that was. They didn't do it to hurt me. They did it because... That's what they believed about Māori. Yeah. That's what they've been, the culture had delivered to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't mean to have any equivalence here, but I think some of our audience kind of do know that from a recent experience, that they were treated in a very bad way mm -hmm. for deciding to preserve their rights. Yep. And some of them suffered a lot. They lost jobs, relationships flew apart. They were called grandma killers, second-class citizens. The prime minister said it. So I think some of us, I'm not, I'm not looking for equivalence here, but do understand 
what that feeling of of being looked down upon is like, of being derated, second class, you know, not worthy. But I'm not saying that is anywhere near the same scale. But uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just trying to say that some of us have an experience of that. Um, okay. okay, so let's – so I get it. So there's there, there's that – what you've described, X a hundred, X a thousand, however many people that involves, many people. There's also, I get it to the um, how important land is. And if you've been, had your land taken away and a disconnect like that, that that's profound. So I get that too. In this day and age though, um, moving up to or, or through this whole concept of co-governance and how it sort of grew into the public consciousness do you think the politicians, the political establishment, has to take some blame that people feel like it was sort of a stealthy march without being consulted, without having, you know, high-profile policies published that people were voting on, and that it was kind of allowed, the situation was allowed to get to the point where people thought something was going on that wasn't right, that they weren't being included in it, it was a threat to what they no, in terms of how they govern, how they vote, the way they think about their society. Because that kind of did happen. Didn't oh, it? yes. Yes, it did. And in a way, um, it, this is the sort of thing that causes us to reflect, and it's the sort of thing we reflect on in, in National Iwi Chairs Forum that I'm a part of. Uh, and this is the fact that for Māori, having spent the last 40, 50 years thinking that we were explaining where Māori come from almost ad nauseum uh, to everyone, thinking, obviously wrongly, that people understood that Māori, each of our hapū, know each of our areas very well, very intimately, because we've been there, many of us have been there for over a thousand years. So we know when it comes to looking after Papa Tuanuku, our Mother Earth, we know what works, what doesn't work. We know where the resources are and all these sorts of things. We just have a very detailed knowledge of our own areas. And then when a, a council, a local council comes in uh, and starts telling you, oh, no, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, and we say to them, well, actually, no, you can't do this because of X, Y, Z, and the council goes, oh, no, blow you. We don't want to listen to you. Uh, finally, after, you know, we've gone through courts to try and sort this out, we've talked and talked and talked to try and explain why you don't do these sorts of things that is really not in anyone's best interest, not just Māori, but everybody. It's not in their best interest to do this, and really you need to be doing ABC instead of XYZ. Um, so we have been doing that, you know, all of my adult life, I have been doing that, I thought, people knew about it. So when it came in 2017 to saying, right, um, our infrastructure is not working in the uh, cities, the, the pipes are, are breaking and everything's old and it's all breaking down. Therefore, the, now I knew that when this came in, by the way, um, that councils had always been arguing that they never had enough money to be able to do it. I sat on a board of inquiry back in the 1990s and I heard council after council say that they couldn't deal with the sewerage properly in their area because they didn't have enough money. They couldn't renew the pipes, the water pipes and that sort of thing because they didn't have enough money. So governments kept feeding it into them and... I don't know what happened to the money, but obviously it didn't go on the infrastructure. Then you get this thing coming in saying, well, actually, let the central government do it. But while you're at it, you need the best expertise, the best knowledge base that you possibly can have in order to make sure that the decisions you make are right. For that, you need not only local government experience, engineering experience, and all that sort of stuff. You also need Māori experience in there as well because they've got over a 1,000 years of knowledge of the re practical realities on the ground. We thought that was just, you know, people would understand. Boy, were we wrong on that one. 
people, I don't know whether they didn't understand that we do actually have a whole lot of expertise that's not held by Western scientists. I don't know whether they didn't understand yeah, that. But, but it was never explained that way, Margaret. I don't rem remember yeah, well, anyone that, ever exactly. explaining it that way, ever. So that's when we were when they came and asked us about it, we went, sure, way you go. Now, where we started to realize that the politicians hadn't done it was when everybody started attacking Nanaya. And we're thinking, well, hang on a minute, where are your Parker mates, your cabinet, other cabinet ministers supporting you? And we didn't hear them. And nationally we chairs from actually said to the government. Do not leave this all up to Nanaya. Oh, so did they walk away, did they? Well, they no. didn't know what to do. I don't know right. that they walked away. When when Nanaya was getting so severely attacked, that's when they removed her as the Minister of Local Because Government. it becomes politically unbearable. Yeah. But in actual fact, if they had got behind Nanaya and, and supported her and said, I did hear that come out from the one who replaced her, whose name has escapes me at the moment, right? Yeah, who explained it really clearly. And I thought to myself, it's too late, mate. The damage has already been done. Why weren't you there with Nanaya explaining this? Because, of course, now we're seeing that people are starting to have second thoughts on getting rid of three waters. Well, of course. How yeah. else are you going to look after the infrastructure in this country? And, of course, water is so emotive anyway because people see it as a fundamental of life. Well, it and, is. And, and, and it's challenging to anyone to think that uh, there might be some kind of control that they're not too sure about in there. You know, it's it's basic stuff, right? Yeah, and, and that's where a much better job should have been done about not only what expertise is needed to look after water properly, but where that expertise lies. And if it was pitched in that way, that this is expertise that you need about this, and also this thinking that underpins Māori thinking that if you do not protect the life-giving power of water, in other words, you, you make sure that it's not being polluted, that it's not being... No fluoride. Well, exactly that sort of thing, what, yeah. whatever, then you're not going to be able to sustain the human race if you do not look after your water. And that's called te mano te way. And somehow or other, because it was called that, people got upset about it. And again, I think it's this fact that New Zealanders who have by right, every right to understand Māori culture, Māori language, Māori everything, if they'd have understood exactly what was being said here, they'd go, yeah, well, of course, if you don't look after your water, if your water's all polluted, if your water is no longer drinkable, no longer swimmable, no longer wadeable, what are we all going to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, the concept of co-governance then, yep. given what you've told us, the sort of like the, the fast-forward history lesson, it's been a quick yep. one, but we don't have that much time, but I think we get a sort of like a view. Okay, D to have a... A successful, an idealistically successful system, let's say, in yep. the way you see things. Is it possible? Are we talking about two, two sort of parallel systems operating kind of in their own way, but at the same time and obviously spilling over each other because, you know, yep. we're, we're in the same, you know, geographical space and all of that. Can that work? Can that satisfy Ma the Maori world experience, like you pointed out, but also you know, the way Europeans see things or that culture sees things where the individual, you know, I am me, I, I, I'm i number one as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's all about uh, the uh, individual rights, my, you know, right to do this, right to do that. What do the Americans say? Right to happiness, all that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, meritocracy, all those things. Can, can a system like that, do you think, operate successfully? Given, yes, given all the, you know, everyone wants everything to work, but can it? Yes, it can. And that's exactly what Te Tiriti promised. It promised that Māori could continue to be Māori, make our own decisions about our own lives, and over all of our own resources as well, including our land and what have you. But that when we gave over responsibility for 
Parker came coming in here to the Queen of England, we allowed them to be who they are. But that is the nature of Māori culture anyway, is that you are who you are. And who you are means adhering to your own language, adhering to your own culture and that. So what we we did a lot of work um, in National Iwi Chairs from, from 2010 onwards on um, what we call constitutional transformation in order to allow for this sort of thing. There's a report came out in 2016 called the, well, it's known as the Mātika Mai Aotearoa or the Constitutional Transformation uh, Report. What we recommended in there was that the country have a look at a system because of the work we had to do, we had to come up with models that would allow this country to be based on what He Hakaputanga and Te Tiriti had said, the 1835 Declaration and the 1840 Declaration. How could we do that in a way that made sure that everybody could achieve their potential? That was the, the mission, the, the vision statement. Now, what we recommended out of that actually came originally out of the Waitangi Tribunal where they said, well, Māori have always lived in a Māori world where we see things as Māori. They called that a sphere of influence, and that was called the rangatiratanga sphere of influence, where Māori make their decisions for their lives according to their tikanga. Then you have what the tribunal called the kawanatanga sphere, which is where the Crown makes its decision for its people. And where those two need to talk to each other where things overlap between the two, you could have, you could either get them to learn to talk to each other, not doing too well on that at the moment, but you need to get them to learn to talk to each other, or you can set up a third sphere of influence that they called the relational sphere, where you'd put representatives from both into that relational sphere, and they would make decisions on an equal basis, neither could veto the other, and they had to come to a consensus on everything that they did. Consensus making is, of course, um, part of the value system of Māori. If you make decisions by consensus, it means you've got buy-in from not necessarily 100%, but pretty much 90% or more. Those are decisions that hold. Decisions that are made on a 51-49 basis are decisions that are always going to wobble because half of the people are unhappy. It's too close. The margins yeah. are too close. So that's what we recommended be done. And the question that David Seymour is now saying is that that is not done anywhere else in the world. What that is known as in legal circles is legal pluralism. And legal pluralism is when you have more than one legal system operating in the same yeah. Uh, nation state. You've got it in Canada um, between the French and the British. You've yeah. got it in the United States where you have the um, Native American tribes have their own jurisdiction. Yep. Uh, yeah. with their own. You've got it in many places in um, South America. There are lots of examples of legal pluralism throughout the world where David Seymour is saying there are no such thing. Well, I'm sorry, he's wrong. Um and Mind you, I would I would make a point that the two countries that you cited are vast land masses where there's huge space and a lot of distance potentially between people, and that sure. might have something to do with it. But just just say so. Didn't yeah, to- sure. Because what our report said was once Maori, but remembering that Maori are the first people of this country. And we do take very seriously our responsibilities that come from this. And we do see that it is our responsibility to make sure that everybody is looked after in this country. It's it, Again, it's one of our um, one of our fundamental values of monarchy, of looking after our guests, looking after those who we invited in. And we invited people in. Under the treaty, we invited them in. So there is no question in terms of us upholding the treaty of telling anyone to go home. We can't do it. We have to not only invited them in, we've got to look after them. So there's no – that's – okay. So 
what what you're saying it's one of those what you're saying questions what you're saying is that that you're not Maori is not telling people to go home no can't like go back to Under the treaty we can't <laughs> but and most of us are from here anyway and that's all we know but okay that's interesting i want to we're coming up an hour this is fascinating. Oh, Thank you okay. so much for, for chatting with us. I want to just ask a couple of questions before I notice the time runs out. Um, the whole the whole debate around treaty principles yep. and them not being kind of in black and white with the articles of the treaty, like mm-hmm. a sort of like a an evolution stage at some point along the way. Um, that seems to be, you know, what what people are having a problem with. Because it's potentially quite loose, isn't it? Because you can you can kind of create principles quite easily, and you can actually argue them too. But if they're not there in the actual articles, they're really not connected to anything, are they? So the what I've always been very clear about, and it was certainly what was coming out of Tūranga Waiwais, coming out of Waitangi yep. as well, is the reason why the so-called principles, and Māori have had no say on this, by the way, around the principles. Yeah, because that's the court system, right, it, 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 and politicians. And politicians, yeah. Okay, yeah. So why that was put in place was because under the uh, wrong assumption that there were two versions of the treaty, but there weren't two versions. There was only one. The one that was signed, the one that was debated, even though and I know this is often quoted that 39 Rangatira signed the um, English English version. Went back, did some research that was actually done by Mike King. Um, They went and talked to the people. The late late historian. No, no, no. Mike King, the comedian. Oh, the the comedian. (laughs) (laughs) They did a documentary where they went around the country, talking to those. Uh, I don't yeah. Know. yeah, talking to those who had signed the treaty to ask them what their history, what their memories of signing the treaty was. When they asked those people there, what they were told was, okay, two people signed the Māori document. The missionary who was there doing it, a guy by the name of Maunsell, said to them, okay, this one here, it's in English, but it means exactly the same as the Māori one, so it's okay if you sign this one. Now, I don't know whether he knew. I don't know whether his Māori language was good enough for him to understand. So that might not have been disingenuous. It might have been an honest assumption. might have been an honest mistake. Uh, Okay. But whatever, it was not what they discussed, and that's what I'm so very clear about. What was discussed, what was debated, what was agreed to was only what was written in the Māori language. If you think of the practical realities of the time, the Māori language was the only language really spoken in this country. There was a community that spoke English, but the overwhelming majority all spoke Māori. And the nuances of the meanings of the particular words in Māori had their own distinct meanings in the minds of those people. Yes, exactly. And like in any language, in any culture, you know, you try and explain to me what sovereignty is. It takes books and books to explain what sovereignty is. Yeah, yeah. You try and ex- and me, I have struggled. I'm a linguist. I I specialize in translation. I have struggled for twenty years to come up with a good translation for Kawanatanga, hmm. because what I have to think about is what was it that those rangatira were asking the Queen of England to do, and you know. It's come up with governance, but that's not what it is. It was you take control of these people to make sure that they abide by the law. And the law in that case was the rule of law. Okay. So um, now you have to remind me where I'm at. Uh, Well, I I was asking you um, about about the principles and and extrapolating them from the articles. Yeah. Okay. So what I, what I and Many Māori who have, you know, have expertise on the treaty have said the principles are a myth that were developed in order to try and bed in that the British had taken over sovereignty, that Māori had ceded the sovereignty. So, so another, are you saying, question, they're kind of irrelevant in your Absolutely. 
They are totally irrelevant. And the thing that we can say that very clearly now and that you can put a, a, a legal line under it is that in 2014, the Waitangi Tribunal, after finally, finally inquiring into both He Hakaputanga and Tichirichi and their English parts of them, the Declaration of Independence and the English Language Treaty, made a finding that Māori did not cede sovereignty. Now, once you get that, then the whole purpose for the principles is gone because the only reason for the principles was to be able to assert that Māori had ceded sovereignty, but we hadn't. And so, therefore, we will say to you, leave the treaty as it is and implement it. It is a very generalised document that can... It was designed to be able to carry on through the generations. Each generation is going to have its own reading yeah, yeah. as to how you do it. things evolve. They, you know, yes, absolutely. Never stay still. Yeah, Absolutely. But the whole notion was Māori can be Māori. We can make our own decisions about our own lives. Pākehā and everybody else that comes with you, you are going to come under the control of the Queen of England, the Crown essentially. You will live by your own laws, but you need to be able to talk to each other and do so because the treaty at the end, Te Tiriti itself, was a treaty of peace and friendship. And that's something I do not want the country to forget. Yeah, It's a treaty of peace and friendship. The English one was a declaration of war. You do not want that one. You want the one that said we would live in peace and harmony. Are we going to get through this? Do you think? Yes, we are, because we with the minimum of with the minimum of agro. You know, that's. I think what what has to happen, and you know, David Seymour saying we're going to rush down and and have a referendum, and all I'm saying is, for heaven's sake, if you're going to have a referendum, for give the people at least give them the consideration of being able to understand the whole picture, right? Instead of just what is effectively what uh, Minor Jackson used to call the, the myth takes, okay? The myths yeah. that were all built up, yep. that were all wrong, and therefore they were myth takes. Let yeah. the people know everything. And then if you must do a referendum, we in the Māori world you don't do things like referendums. You come to decisions by consensus. I would love in my lifetime to see this country come to a consensus about our constitutional maker. Margaret Mutu, thank you for coming on our radio station. Really appreciate it. Kilda, thank you very much. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. 